We have overwhelmed you with long passages of scripture. This morning, uh, it's, it's going to be one of those days where you're going to have to stand with me, and we're going to read just one verse of the scriptures this morning. Would you stand with me? This is from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And in that verse, we find these words that are written by a prophet long ago who we will never know in this life, but delivered God's word to the people in those days and to you this morning. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel. This is the word of God. Would you sit with me? <clears throat> I am convinced that I am probably the worst person to be observant of things. Um, I'm finding that uh, there are times in my life where I will put down my glasses in a certain place thinking, okay, I will remember where I placed them. And then I will spend uh, probably within the next three hours looking for them. Are you like that? Or I'm working in the wood shop and I will put, I have six tape measures, six. And, and I cannot tell you where one of them is right now. Because they're somewhere in the shop, but I cannot seem to find them. It happened to me this morning as I was thinking about this passage and preparing to preach to you this morning. Uh, because I, I opened the refrigerator, and my wife is so kind, she makes tea for me, brewed tea that is in the refrigerator in jars. And I go through tea so often that she has to keep about three jars filled. Well, I went to the refrigerator door, and I opened it to take out the tea, and I didn't see it, so I closed it, and then went into the pantry to find the other jar that she had made, which I did find. Poured the tea, and then when I finished with that, I put the tea back in the refrigerator and opened the door, and right there where the tea wasn't was a jar of tea that was. <laughs> and I thought, how did that happen? And instantly, my wife must have without my even knowing it, brewed a another jar of tea and put it in the refrigerator while I was pouring the other side of the jar. Well, I'm convinced more and more that sometimes we get into ruts in such ways that you and I become so oblivious to the obvious that you are overlooking the opportunities that God has for you today. Now, do you hear me? Don't let this wash over you. Are you missing the opportunities that God has for you today? And you say, well, I, I, I don't want to. Well, obviously, none of us would like to miss the blessings of God. The question is, why do we? Well, part of it has to do with our very nature. We're habitual. We are habit-formed people. But the other part is that we kind of gloss over the fact that God is at work. We just assume that God is at work, but we never really take seriously that he's working in me or in you. Well, this morning we're talking about hope, and as we go to this verse in Isaiah, there are some things you should be aware of as we deal with this passage. The first is there was a, a rising crisis in the time of Isaiah's life. 
he was called by God to preach to a people who were not going to listen to him. He was going to deliver the word of God to them in such ways that they needed to hear God speak to them. But because of their choices in life, they had become dull in their hearing. They had been waxed over by their sins. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, if you, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, if you open it to Isaiah and you look in the first three chapters, you'll find, especially in chapter 3, that in the time that Isaiah lived, there were some things happening in his days that sound too familiar in ours. The first is that being young was more valued than being old. And in because of that, in chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, you would find that in Isaiah's day, the young were becoming so unruly because they were lawless, that they were preying on the old. They were oppressing the old, taking advantage of the weak. They were usurping their youth and their power, not to honor or glorify God. They were at the way of life that says, I'm going to do what I want no matter what and enjoy it. And because of that, the nation was in trouble. In the first two chapters, God, God reveals to Isaiah that he's calling him to preach to a culture that has young people who no longer listen to God. And in not listening to God, they listen to their any voice that would encourage them to live as if there is no God. But the second thing that was happening was that the leaders, the leaders who were hopefully leading the people, they had no solutions. Why, in verse, verses chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, it, it says that one man would look at his brother who had a coat on. Apparently, he was doing well. This man apparently knew something because he was dressing where others weren't, so they would pick him and say, okay, help us out of this mess. And the brother would look at the other person and say, I have no solutions feel that way about today? The third thing that was happening in Isaiah's day that was absolutely unbelievable for our people of God was that they were so far from the heart of God and so ignorant of God's laws that they were sinning publicly without any shame. There was no one blushing anymore about anything that they knew God had said don't do. It was so bad that sodomy was practiced in public. Immorality was ravaging the country. And to put the icing on the cake, materialism had so gripped the people that they were so desirous for possessions that the women were so desirous to be adorned with jewelry and outward adornment to be to be languished in perfumes and stones that they would have this outward appearance of being so glamorous and gorgeous that they were haughty and vain. They had no care for the poor or for anyone else. Does that sound familiar? It's in that culture that Isaiah was called to preach you see, and during that civil unrest, God called a man to preach his word. 
And it wasn't all. There was also injustice. What do I mean injustice? Well, the people who were appointed by the king to offices were using their office to get rich. They were being bribed, maybe campaign finance, maybe uh, under-the-table money that was given to sway their decisions on what permits would be passed, what wills could be dug, what buildings could be built. And if you were poor, you had no hope. There was no way that you were going to get a permit, at least on the timely manner. You had to somehow cough up some money somewhere along the line to get the influence you needed to do what you wanted. And so because of that, the rich were growing richer and the poor were getting poorer. The judges who judged the laws of their courts, they began to judge in ways that just totally, totally forgot God's holy law. And they began to judge based on what benefit the laws would give to them and to those who they favored. So that justice was no longer blind, it was wide open. And their, their culture, their justice system was languishing. You think that's bad enough, right? Can't get any worse. Well, we come to that chapter where we find that in chapter, chapter 5, God sends out Isaiah and he says, let me sing a song to you. Let me sing a song of, of the one I love. A song about a vineyard. A vineyard that God had brought out of Egypt, a people who he had brought into a promised land and he planted them and he gave them the choicest of things. He built a watchtower to protect them. He gave them crops to feed them. He gave them cities to dwell in. God supplied all of their needs. And the most amazing thing is in all the provision that God had given them, they had turned away from the living God. And in so turning, God would no longer protect them. God said, what will I do? What more could I have done? What could I possibly have provided for them that would let them see my goodness and grace and mercy in their life? And because of their response to his gracious offer, God had determined, I'm going to take away your hedges. I'm going to remove your walls. I'm going to no longer allow your fields to produce going to judge you and judge you for your sins. And it's in that moment that King Ahaz, who is king of Judah, who is the last of the line of King David, finds out that a city, a nation, two of them, have raised themselves up because they are going to conquer Judah and kill The king of the king of uh, of Aram, which would be modern Syria, his name was Rezin, had made a, a pact with the king of Israel, who was the northern tribes after the civil war that came that formed northern Israel and Judah, that these two kings had decided, you know, 
we've had enough of these people who are called Judah claiming to be God's people. We're really God's people, and we're going to eliminate him or eliminate them, and we're going to eliminate Ahaz, the last descendant of David. But here's the real crisis. God had promised David that through his lineage, he would send one who would redeem his people. The Messiah would come, and Ahaz was the last of the line. And if Ahaz was eliminated, God's promise would never come to true. And there was the crisis. When you think about this time that Isaiah is living in, it's a time where you and I can identify in so many ways because we're living in times when, when we too are living in culture that, that seems to have forgotten who God is. And so in forgetting who God is, you see people living according to whatever they decide is right. And in that crisis, God is at work. What do I mean? Is there any hope? Of course there is. And it's in that hope that God reaches out to Ahaz and he tells him very pointedly, Ahaz, if you will simply turn to me and trust me, I will do far more than you can possibly imagine. If you go and you look very carefully back in chapter 7, you'll see that Ahaz is approached by Isaiah and he is challenged at that moment. He says in verse 11, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Can you hear that? The king is, is encouraged. Look, if you, want, if you want evidence, proof that God still is in the throne, he still is at work, ask him. Just ask him whatever you desire and see if God will not hear your prayer and respond to you. But Ahaz, representing the fickless leadership of his day and the fickless culture that he lived in, he he uses a way out. He says, I, I will not ask, verse 12. I, I will not put God to a test. Do you see what he's doing? He, he's, using, he's using his faith as a way of not having faith. He's taking that commandment where it says, do not test the Lord. And he's saying, I'm not going to test God in this. Why? Because God is not being tested. God is asking, you show me how I can prove to you that I am your God and I'll give it to you. But Ahaz in the minutes of his ficklessness turns and says, no, no, I, I can't do that. That would just not be right. And in the midst of that response, he reveals how anchorless the whole business that he's living in is. How can anyone follow a leader who is in this way? And it is in that context that we hear Isaiah say these words, verse 13, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. 
And the virgin will be with child, and she will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. You know what that means? God with us. Now, what did Paul say in Romans chapter 8? That if God be for you, who can? Yeah. Do you hear the hope? Is God? Is God speaking to you? Here's the joy of this. Here's where the excitement comes in. It looks dark. It looks really bad. It looks so dark that there, there's no one who knows what to do. There's no one who knows how to lead. There's no one who does what's right by just turning my faith to God. And God says, here's my promise to you. I'm going to give you a child. And it's going to be the sign that I am with you. And then he goes on to explain to the king that these two little kingdoms, these little friar brands as he calls them, by the time this child is able to know what is right and wrong, these two kingdoms will be gone. And you'll still be here. But because of your sins, look at verse 17. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Israel or from Judah when the, the division happened in, in Israel where Israel became a northern kingdom and Judah became the southern kingdom. Something's going to happen that has never happened before. What? God is going to bring the king of Assyria and he's going to carry away the people into and the Jews would say, what? Our God is going to allow us to be taken into bondage? How is that a blessing? Here it is. It's a blessing in that Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. If you don't have your Bibles, trust me to read it. But Peter writes in chapter 1, verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with, and with greatest of care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances through which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. What is Peter saying? He's saying everything we just read in Israel those people who read it every day, who knew Isaiah and saw his prophecy, they didn't understand. They were still looking for the tea. They were trying to make sense of it all. And Peter says, Isaiah was not just speaking to them in their day. He was speaking for you today. What was he saying? That God is going to bring a son, a child, that will bring hope to this world? Here it is. It's in chapter 7, verse 15. God reveals that the present time, this child, Emmanuel, will be in the presence of Ahaz and he will see God's promise fulfilled that the two kingdoms that are now at war with him will be gone. There's the present fulfillment. But if you go to chapter 9, and here's where the prophecy gets rich. When you go to chapter 9 and verse 2, if you turn in your Bibles, you will hear these words, which absolutely 
bring, bring such joy. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice with, when div dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke and burdened them, and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. And it goes on, and if you look down very quickly, verse 6, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on his David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. What is he saying? That in sending, Assyria, sending the, Israel, the Judeans and the Israelites into captivity, God was doing an even greater thing. He was judging the sins of his people and punishing them for their sins. But he was also making a way for them to be redeemed and brought out of that slavery, restored to their land, and at the right time, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, this child that would be born who would fulfill this great salvation would be born. They couldn't see it. They couldn't get past the idea that God would give them over to slavery because of their sins. And they couldn't see, even today, the Jews could not see in the scriptures how when God did that, he prepared the way for the coming of Jesus. Now, if God goes to all that trouble to preserve his word and to keep his promises, will he not also keep his promises to you? You see, when you came to Christ and you said, Lord, I confess my sins to you, please forgive me, do you think he hasn't forgiven you? Of course he has. Do you think that by his coming, he has not provided a way for you to have peace with God through the cross? Of course he has. But here's the joy. We are in the season of Advent where we look back not to just what God did in the past, but we look to the time when God will do something in the future. What will he do? He will establish his kingdom on the earth. It will have an end. And all the things you see in this world that are wrong, all the injustices, all the things that are just so evident because people are turning away from the living God, you're going to see God do something miraculous. And that advent will be when Christ returns. You say, well, wait a minute. Where, 
are you sure this is right? Are, are you positive? I mean, Robert, do you have this rightly interpreted? Because, by the way, there are, there are numbers of commentaries. You could look at different religions that look at this passage and they say, wait a minute, Robert, that's all wrong. You've got that wrong. Never did it say that, G, that the, the one, the Messiah, the one who would be born, the child who would be the almighty father, the prince of peace, never did it say that they would be born of a virgin. In fact, believe it or not, the virgin birth and the conviction that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary has become one of the most unpopular doctrines of the church today. Do you know why? Because people have the hardest time imagining how can any child be born when there's no father? Well, let me answer that. Notice very carefully. It comes with this surprising prevailing hope. It's in chapter 1 of Matthew. And in Matthew, Matthew reveals for us. And remember what Peter said. Peter said, what we now know about the prophecy of Isaiah, we now know because God has revealed it. In chapter 1 of Matthew, verse 18, hear what Matthew writes. He says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, does it have to be any clearer? She was found to be with child. How? Through the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But verse 20, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what was conceived in her from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Do you hear it? You see, Matthew, Matthew is now quoting all the way back to Isaiah for this very reason, that you and I would begin to see clearly God's revelation in Isaiah when it was spoken to Ahaz, that it wasn't just for Ahaz, it was for us. That this son, Jesus, who would be born... He would be given by God because of the Holy Spirit at work in Mary's body. And amazingly, she would give birth to a son, even though she had never known her, her fiancé. And in giving birth to a son, the son was declared to be a male before he was ever seen by anyone. And in that male would be the descendant of David through Mary by physical dissension and would be adopted into Joseph's family he was part of David's lineage. And, John, and Matthew is screaming out. He says, this is the one that Isaiah spoke of. This is the one that God has promised that we will have victory over our sin. He will come and establish for us peace we could not have without him. And that's why we're going to call him Jesus. Because Jesus means... Yahweh, God, is salvation. Well, what does that have to do with us today? Well, let me tell you, 
the same problems the people of Judah faced in their day. Remember? The rising problems of the youth not living not listening to the laws, the overwhelming haughtiness of women concerning more about their outward adornment than the inward character of their lives, the injustices that were happening because of bribes, all of that has been in every generation since the time of the fall of Adam. The only thing that will remove this from us is a Savior, and His name is Jesus. And so whether, whether it was the Assyrians, that would be God's use of bringing judgment upon our sins or the Romans during the time of Christ who were oppressing the, Jew, the Jews, this Savior was not someone who was going to put a political party in power that would somehow push the right buttons and pass the right laws so that all things would be okay as we are thinking today. But the future of humanity and our salvation is based upon a Savior who would come and bear our sins upon a tree and on the third day be raised from the dead so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And this is the hope of Christmas. You can never open another present on Christmas without remembering the gift that God has given you. You can never decorate another Christmas tree without being reminded that God decorated his people with love and mercy when they didn't deserve it. You can never go shopping in Target on Black Friday in the midst of a cesspool of people crowding stores and forget that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever would believe in him would not perish. But have everlasting life. Do you hear him? Every couple of days I, I find myself feeling itchy. Are, are you like that? My wife says, if you just put on some cream, you won't be so itchy. It's not that. It, it's, the, it's that itch for, I want things to be right with the world. I, I want to have peace. I, I want to have a, a time where I don't have the frustrations that life can bring. You ever feel that way? Well, let me tell you, there's hope. Hope in what? Hope in Jesus. Because through him, he says, he can give you abundant life. It will not happen through any other means except through him. And so the one who would have life must come to Jesus. And in coming to Jesus, acknowledge their inability to scratch their own itches to remove their own struggles, to change their own nature, they must come to him who is able to work far more exceedingly they can, than they can hope or desire. This Jesus can change the heart of the people who call upon him. And there is the hope of Christmas. 
all the more needful that the church rise up today and be unashamed of the gospel. It's all the more important that we would be people who would be quick to share that our hope is in Jesus. All the more it is urgent that you and I begin to grapple with this truth that there is no future for us as a people or as a nation unless it be upon that devotion and allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only hope we have. And thanks be to God, he has been given to you. Our gracious God and our Father, as we approach this time of Advent, do not let us live a life where there is a Christless Christmas, where we go through the, the traditions of our celebration without taking hold of the present you have given in the person of Jesus, that we would not play the games of religion, but that we would call upon the name of the Lord that he might come and save us from our sins. And that in saving us, we might be cleansed and renewed and we might be set upon a rock that will not falter, upon a ground that will not change, upon a truth that is always, everywhere, forever true. We pray, Father, for the days in which we live where we are tempted, if we are young, to think in ways that cause us to violate your laws, where we are rich, where we begin to think more that our power is in our wealth than in our faith, where we begin to live lives in such ways, God, that we begin to play fast and loose, and we forget the precepts that you have given us, the, the commandments that you have ordained for us, the path in which we are to walk, and it is in that path that we come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the grace and mercy of God to take hold of the meaning of Christmas. That God is with us. When that happened to Isaiah, when he was with the Lord, he fell on his feet and then on his stomach and cried out, Oh, I am a man of unclean lips. And he struggled and suffered in the knowledge of his sin. And through the grace of your mercy, you allowed an angel to come with a coal and singe his lips because the lips, the tongue, the tongue is where we truly reveal what it is we believe. And it defiles us. as you burned away the sin and cleansed Isaiah so he could be in the presence of the God of all creation. We thank you that in Jesus Christ you have given us the hope that through Jesus Christ you truly do forgive sins and you cleanse all those who call upon you. Thanks be to God. People of God said together,